Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in D.C., and I'm your host, Julie Kurtz. Lunch Agenda is a podcast that brings to light the lesser-known parts of the food system, illuminating an array of topics uh, with guests like Leah Penniman, Mark Bittman, Marion Nessel, Julie Tertian, Michael Twitty. You can find all the interviews on your favorite podcast app or at lunchagenda.simplecast.com. So through the end of 2019 on the lunch agenda, we're taking a critical look at whether a Green New Deal could help us shape a more healthy, just, inclusive, and sustainable system. Learning from farmers, food workers, food business, policy specialists, and advocates. And today, episode five of Eating the Green New Deal, we explore the food system through the eyes of two millennial farmers, Jake Errett and Davon Goodwin. Jake farms corn and soy on his uncle's farm and his uh, father's livestock farm in southwest Minnesota. He earned his BA from Excelsior um, in Minnesota and uh, has for seven and a half years worked for Mayo Clinic's Ambulance Service, which is where I met Jake. If I remember correctly, Jake allowed me to start a number of IVs on his arm for some practice, so hopefully those bruises are gone. Sorry about the pokes, Jake. Uh, Devon grew up in Pittsburgh and studied botany at the University of North Carolina, Pembroke. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he earned a Purple Heart after he was wounded by an improvised explosive device. Now Devon works with Growing Change and manages the Sand Hills Ag Innovation Center and owns and operates OTL Farm in North Carolina, where he grows muscadine grapes and raises livestock. He was also a 2017 Stone Barns Exchange Fellow. So, Jake and Devon, welcome to Lunch Agenda. It's a real treat to have you on. You Thank guys, you. thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, pleasure. So, uh, Jake, let's actually start with you. You've been, um, your farm is a century farm in Minnesota, so your family has that, that legacy been there. And, and, and you've talked before some about your grandfather's experience farming compared to what it's like now. And so could you tell us a little bit how farming has changed for your family in past decades in, in Minnesota? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my grandpa was born in 1924, and he started farming pretty much around like when he was 12, pretty young. And he used to use horses and like things that are obsolete now. Like we, I couldn't even fathom using a horse to plow, to plant, to um, pull the equipment, to, like even during the harvest season and like hand shelling the husks of the corn and, and doing all of that. And actually my great, great, grandma she was a painter so we actually have um a picture of my grandpa out 
with the horses when he was around 12 years old. And at the time, like when he was doing the painting, like the, he was irritated with my, with like his mom that he had to stop every time he got to the end of the field so that she could paint where he was (laughs) and keep that same kind of position and stuff. And so, and then it was a lot of years later and his, older years that he was very appreciative of that painting and was glad that he took the time looking back on it. And so as things kind of went, um, they used like a uni. So they used to combine with eventually one row and then they tractor started to kind of form around and they used, they didn't have cabs on them. They were loud. They didn't have that much power when they planted. It was very different. Like they would plant were a spacing of about a foot in between like the seeds and the rationale for that was that when they cultivated they could cultivate in kind of any direction so east and west north and south so you're giving a complete coverage of the um field so that you could get rid of weeds and things like that um and they used to do that three times now let's fast forward we're planting our seeds an inch to an inch and a half apart from each other, and our populations are um, right around 136,000 for um, soybeans. And so it's increased dramatically. We have 30-inch rows. Uh, there's kind of been this trial and error of how far do we plant from each other? Is it 30? Is it 16? My grandpa actually has a 16-year-old planter that we use. Um, and then for and Jake, just corn, to stop Sora Leonard, so a 16-row planter that you're talking about, there's that's 16 rows of corn or soy that that you can drive this planter down and plant all at the same time, 16 rows. Yeah, so they, he does have a 16-row planter, and then the rows were actually 16 inches apart from each other, where now we're to 30-inch rows. So okay. we have 30 inches in between each row. Okay. And we are lucky. Uh, Jake was in the tractor most of the day, and, and he thought he might be in the tractor for this interview, but we, we, we get the quiet version. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was good. You can thank my grandpa. He actually came out and replaced me. Okay. Thanks, Grandpa. So, Devon, one of the reasons I wanted to have um, to talk with with two millennial farmers is that, you know, you guys are roughly the same age. You're in different parts of the country. Um, but uh, multi-generational um, versus uh, you, Devon, are first-generation farmer. So your experience coming into farming is is very different than Jake's. And so I think it's it's really cool to get a sense of when we make generalizations about this, you know, this generation of, of young farmers, we can't, there's a, quite a variety across the country. And, and um, so I'm curious, uh, for your experience of, as you've encountered farming, um, what is it? What has been that process been like, and how has y- how has your relationship to farming changed since you started? You may not be able yes, to great, head back to your grandfather, yes. but for you, what has it been like <laughs> over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, this is going on in my sixth year in farming. Sixth um, year. So. Um, it's been interesting. I started off as a farm manager, uh, managing about 466 acres um, in adjacent county mm-hmm. in Hope County, North Carolina, where we did a multiple of livestock, forestry, hay, and grapes. 
And so it's been it's been kind of a challenge and an opportunity. Obviously, I had a great opportunity learning while I was managing, and that was uh, really essential to my growth as a young farmer. Mm-hmm. But when you don't come from the legacy of farming, so like last year we took our plunge and we bought our first track of land, which was 42 acres. Congratulations. And this year we finished our house. We have to put up fencing. We had to buy a new tractor. And so it's it's a lot, it's a struggle because we have to almost finance everything. Yeah. Um, and so when you don't inherit it, I'm not saying it's no easier, but it's a struggle because now it makes the, the whole farming a lot tougher because now you have a lot of loans. Yeah. And student loans was a huge issue for us when we first started out. Um, five years ago, we couldn't have farmed on our own track of land just because the fact of we had a lot of student loans. Um, and so those have been some barriers. But it's been, I think, not come from a farmer family mm-hmm. is kind of like a gift and a curse. I think it's a, a great opportunity because uh, everything is new, you know. So how I farm, the way I farm, it's kind of like, you know, it's the way I want to farm. And there's no uh, kind of preconceived notion on what types of crops I'm going to farm. Um, and I think it's a hindrance because you have to learn everything. So mm-hmm. not growing up on a farm, growing up in a city, you have to learn how to drive a tractor, how to plant, timing, how to fertilize. And so it's been it's been a, a pretty uphill battle, but it's, it's been a good one. Yeah. Jake, how old were you when you first got into the tractor? Oh, my goodness. Uh, young. <laughs> <laughs> you don't remember is what you're telling uh, me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Preschool. So four, five. Yeah, sure. So... Um, both of you work f- jobs off farm, if, if, if from my correct, if I understand that correctly. Um, I know that, um, Devon, you do some really amazing work with Growing Change. You manage the Sand Hill Ag Innovation Center. I'm wondering, do you, is that mean you have a mix between jobs on farm and off farm, or is Devon is your farm your primary occupation? No, so yeah, I have to work off the farm to be able to pay for it. Yeah, um, which is challenging because I really farm when I get off of work, and then I farm normally Friday, Saturday, and Sunday all day long. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's tricky um, because I need the income off the farm to be able to make it go at it on the farm. Because mm-hmm. if I just said, okay, well, I'm going to spend all my time on the farm and don't have an off the farm job, it'll get pretty risky. And having a young family, uh, that's something that you know. I have to keep in perspective and have to remember that it's just not me on the farm, but it's my family as well. And so yeah. the off-farm income is, is crucial for me to be able to get the farm up off the ground. Yeah, and this is more and more true, is that um, over the years, uh, farmers, uh, they, they have off-farm jobs to support their, their farming habits, even even when they're farming a lot of acres. Um, and uh, Jake, I know your situation, because you you are both working for your uncle and your dad, um, uh we met when you were when in a, your second your other job, and so you you work at least one job off the farm as well. Yep, that's correct. Okay. And uh, yeah, and so yeah, like Javon said, yeah, that income is nice, and having that steady income, farming, you know, it has changed dramatically and drastically. Before, you know, I was talking to one of my uh, bosses actually at work on the ambulance, and we're talking about. He remembers like years ago, everyone could farm. Like everyone was doing it. It was more. It was easy to come by. It was. You didn't have to. Um, in the industry now, comparing it to today, 
Now you need to be knowledgeable in marketing, knowing, you know, your break-even points, knowing, you know, um, doing your cost and analysis. And so it's a lot different, different mm-hmm. now and how you run it, the operation, compared to, you know, 40, 50 years ago. You didn't have to necessarily worry about marketing. You didn't have to worry about, you know, that necessarily cost analysis. I'm like today where it's just like you got to get in the corn soon. And, you know, they used, you know, it was like the saying was plant in like the 7th of May, you know, and, you know, it was knee high by the 4th of July. And mm-hmm. now we're definitely past knee high, you know, and so it's like if, the corn is knee high. It's almost like a failed year. And so it's really changed in mm-hmm. how the business practice, you have to be sort of business knowledgeable to yeah. be successful. And Yeah. Yeah, you really have to be a savvy business person, not just a, a smart botanist. <laughs> um, so, Jake, you and I have talked a little bit about this. Um, and, uh, Devon, you just mentioned that um, you know, a while ago, you weren't able to, to own and operate your own land because of student loans. So um, the the amount of debt that farmers have to go into in order to acquire land or just the challenges of land access are a really big deal. Um, uh, just this week, uh, the Star Tribune newspaper, which is out of Minnesota, featured a story about the challenges of, the, of land access for young farmers. Um, so we're looking at land prices that have roughly tripled in the past uh, 20 years. And um, even as, as net median farm incomes have, have kind of plateaued. And, and, or, and so um, you've mentioned, Jake, about the desire to maintain your family's kind of mid-sized farm. But the pressures that you face when you're surrounded by these farms that are 7, 10, even 20,000 acres. And um, so I'm curious what, what that makes you think about or how does that concern you for the future? Great question. Um, yeah, so when it comes to farmers that have that much acres, you know, 7,000 acres, it changes it because they have the capital then to, when land becomes available, to swing it. It's just they can continue to buy more land easily and you're Mm -hmm. trying to compete as someone who doesn't have that capital and it makes it challenging to even grow in the industry when you have people that have been farming for you know 40 50 60 years and are buying land and then the price for them isn't as big of a concern because they have already a number of acres that are paid for that they can use to kind of offset that cost so yeah you can lose money on that specific piece of ground, but then you're making that up on your other ones that are cheaper when you've already owned the land, when your costs are low. So it, it makes it I, dramatically yeah. challenging, drastically challenging to get into farming. And, you know, in a, especially when we were in the recession and corn and soybeans were up into the $9 range and it was land just followed suit and just kind of exponentially increased as well and now that the market's down you don't see that same effect yet it's taking years for that land to kind of follow the market it went up quickly on the downside of that it is takes four years or five years to even come down to where it should be to break even and be you know 
yeah. an option for new and upcoming farmers to purchase. Yeah, and Devon, what has this, so, I mean, you are a first-generation farmer. You've come into farming, and you managed to purchase your own land, which so many young farmers are still struggling to do. And so I'm curious, could you tell us a little bit more what that process was like for you to acquire your own land? Yeah, so it was um, definitely a reality check. Because when I first got in the farm and I just like, I want to have my own land, mm. you know, but I did not know that, you know, credit worthiness and savings and all that was so important. <laughs> um, and so I lived in a camper for five years while my family lived in Charlotte for, you know, those five years. So we lived apart almost our whole time wow. just because so I can save up, you know, because I couldn't afford to pay any bills and try to farm at the same time. Um, so it was definitely not just a sacrifice for me, but a sacrifice for my family because yeah. of the distance. So it put a lot of pressure and strain, you know, on, you know, our family. And it was hard, you know, trying to get funding. You know, I think a lot of misnomers is, oh, there's just a lot of money out there for farming, and it is. But just like Jake said, you know, when you already have a lot of land, it kind of helps you get more land because you can collateralize land, and it's the easier, you know, transition. But when you don't own anything, you go to a bank and you say, I want to become a farmer, um, you get a lot of blank stares, you know, <laughs> and when they start looking at your credit and that's the income ratio, they're like, how are you going to pull this off? Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's kind of like one of those things where you have the dream and you have the passion and the, the work ethic, but you still have this barrier because for us, um, you know, we first got into this new property, I mean, just buying the land was hard enough, then we had to build the house on the land. I mean, so we're already over, you know, $340,000 already. And so it's like, that's a lot for, you know, two 29-year-olds to do, you know, and it's like, wow. And then we had to buy a tractor and then, you know, money for our crops. And so now it's like we budget, We when we look at the whole picture, it's going to be like a half a million dollars, you know. So, I mean, that's a lot of money when you're looking at starting a farm, Um, especially when you do perennials because now I plant – and I'm two to three years out before my crop ever, you know, has this first harvest. And so sure. the economics are tough. And I don't see them getting any better. I see them getting a lot tougher. Um, and, you know, having you know having a student loan debt is just another barrier, you know, yeah. because now you've incurred all this debt to try to further your, you know, your life and your education. But now it's almost a hindrance in farming because mm-hmm. it's like, man, maybe I shouldn't have went to college. You know, maybe I should have just went at this from a different angle because now – when you owe so much money to try to take out another loan, it's going to be an issue. Yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, you guys have talked about some of the, the you know, the ease. If you already have seven, ten thousand 10,000 acres, it's just easier to get more acres. Um, and, and so I want to give a few numbers on the U.S. has um, roughly 2.2 million farms, and that's down about 4 million um, from a, a century ago. Um, even though farmland, total farmland has stayed about the same. So, um, and this means that the average farm size has, has tripled and that right now 4% of farms control 58% of farmland. Um, so, and that used to, they used to just control about uh, 20 years ago, 4%, the top 4% of farms that controlled 50% of farmland. So we can see like, the consolidation is getting more and more serious. We saw it in the, with the 2017 agricultural census. We saw that those big, big farms, that number went up, and the mid-sized farms and smaller farms. Um, the, the kind of middle range especially got smaller. So um, 
yeah, those, those pressures are real. Um, and I guess from your perspective, I'm wondering, you know, um, Devon, Jake, why not just let that be consolidated? Um, it, it seems like, I mean, someone could make the argument if these large farms are successful and they're really able to maximize the benefits of scale, why, why do we need more farmers and more farms? Why not just have fewer big farms? Um, why do we need small farmers on the land at all? Well, yeah, yeah so I guess I'll go first on that if Davon's okay with that. Um, so I think what you're going to run into then is, you know, corporate farming. And so then the business is going to be now instead of young and upcoming, like, generational farms, you're just going to have it be a business. And you're just going to have businesses owning then, like, the land. And so, and we can see a trend as, so there's, you know, one of the things that we see is like American soil is increasingly foreign owned. And the NPR came out with an article on 2019, May 27th, and it talks about how today nearly 30 million acres of U.S. farmland are held by foreign investors. And so if you're going to continue to look at why it's important, I think that is the importance. Like, now you're going to have foreign investors buying land, and then they're just going to hire, like, individuals to, you know, take out the crop, do everything that essentially farming the ground but not being able to own it, and they're just going to be paid to do that. So Mm -hmm. I think it's important to have legacy and have new and upcoming farmers get involved and have a future for them because if we don't, then we're just going to see a business that, you know, we talked about Century Farms and, you know, how it's really, you know, that's a great honor and achievement to come by. And you're not going to have that. You're just going to have businesses owning the land. I don't, and then I think it's a trickle down effect too, where, you know, we have 4 H programs and kids that go and show livestock and pigs. And it's like, like that's at the kind county of the, fairs and that sort of thing. Yeah. Is what you mean? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think you're going to see that then dwindle down to be nothing. And then also, you know, a you know, big organization, FFA, Future Farmers of America, then, you know, you're going to lose a lot. And I think that is where it's really important to, you know, have family farms and to have a new and upcoming generation and to be supportive of new farms. So I think it's important to have a multitude of smaller farmers and you can be successful and not own 10,000 acres. You know, you don't, you know, in my opinion, you don't need to own that. And uh, um, there's people that do though. And yeah. so, and that's part of it. I mean, some people own 20,000 acres, so there's not a cap in that, but then it goes back to the, you know, the capital. So it's like, is, should there be a limit on the amount of acres that you can farm? And then, you know, we do, there are programs out there to kind of help out the new and upcoming farmers. So like mm-hmm. the FSA has programs to try and help new and upcoming farmers. But I think, you know, you see a lot, you're going to see. the Farm Service Agency. Yeah. Yep. 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 So out of yep. the USDA. So and 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 actually, some of the new farm bills, and I know that Devon is is um, uh, in a part of the leadership of the the National Young Farmers Coalition that, with other organizations, has done some really great work, kind of advocating for new programs for for young farmers. Um, so that would be among those to really push that that you know that people recognize farmers are the average age of farmers almost sixty. So we <laughs> there need to be support. For younger farmers, if we're going to even have a next generation of farmers at all, um. yeah, I think it goes to your point. You know, you 
you need small farms. I mean, small farms feed the world. I mean, that's just, you know, yeah. 80% of small farms, well, farms in North Carolina are small. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's a big deal. And if you're going to have a diverse food system, you got to have a diverse group of people who's farming the land. It's, it's really important. And so I, I feel like um, we can definitely do more to, you know, get more people into farming and also, you know, obviously sustain our small farms. And when you, like Jake said, you know, it's a, to me, you know, small farms is part of a national security plan, you know, because if you don't mm-hmm. have these small farms, I mean, who's going to feed these communities? Yeah. You know, we can't look at all these, you know, corporatized farm systems to feed, you know, our communities. That's just not going to happen. And so I feel like the stronger our small farms are, the stronger America is, is definitely. Yeah. So it seems like for both of you, I mean, even though you've acknowledged and, you know, you've already, you're talking numbers that far, farming has to be a business because you, you have to, you have to be able to secure the loans you need. You have to be able to hit that break even point. But farming is clearly more than a business for you. And it's about something else, whether that's family, community, identity. Um, and that's true for both first generation and a century farmer. Um, and, and so I'm curious, why do you, why do you keep doing this um why do it yeah so i guess i will go um and i the i guess the love of farming i mean it's kind of the it's to me it's one of the like the best career that you can have um you you feel like you're living off the land and so in a traditional aspect you know you have corn you have soybeans you have livestock and you're helping to like you're helping feed you know America and other countries, and so you feel like, uh, you know, this like honor and farming, and so that's the, to me, that's why farming is important, and so why I like doing it, and want to grow because you feel like you're contributing to something that's greater than yourself. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's it's definitely a a personal connection, you know. After being, you know, uh, injured in Afghanistan, you know, farming helped save my life. You know, without farming, mm-hmm. I would not be here, you know, because without farming in my community, kind of rallying around me after coming back from war, I definitely wouldn't be here talking to you today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's that sense of indebtedness in my community and, and still wanting to serve my country. I think after military service, I think a lot of veterans like myself still want to have that, you know, service uh, type mentality. And farming lets me serve my community at a level that I think, there's not a lot of other careers you can do so. Yeah. And I think just the, the sense of being a productive member of your community and being able to feed people good food, uh, I think there's no greater honor to that. And so I think that's what gets me up every morning to try to figure out how can I create a food system that is equitable and that people can have access to it, whether it's access to the land or access to the food that we produce. How do you do this? Because obviously our food system is, is kind of broken. And so it's kind of like my new mission in life is to figure out how is it broken, and what can I do as a young farmer to kind of encourage other people to farm, but also to try to fix the system that I see in front of me? Yeah. Devon, I know you've, you've done some really amazing community work with the growing change that is transforming former North Carolina prisons into therapeutic farms and community centers. Is that true? Uh, yes, ma'am. And so you're connecting youth and veterans, and, and they're serving in leadership roles. So there's this... Um, Maybe something that a, a, a very corporate farm would not be as interested in if they were just renting the land out. Um, that's a you've got to no, be really in touch with your community could. for that. Yeah, and I think you have to be. I mean, I think food is uh, it's essential. I mean, it's essential to our daily life, and 
it's been amazing to see what happens when, you know, we kind of have this model of youth and veterans, what happens when you put them together, mm. you know, because it looks like on paper, it looks like it may not be a good connection, <laughs> but it's just not from a therapeutic standpoint, <laughs> but, you know, it's, we're big on storytelling. Mm. We believe that everybody has a story and that you need to share and own your story. And farming lets us do that because when you're working in the fields, you're not going to go all day and not talk to me. And mm. so it's, it's kind of one of those things that it's kind of like a big icebreaker. Yeah. You know, we're out there, we're working, and there's things that you need to maybe discuss that in other settings you wouldn't discuss. And so we definitely use it as a therapeutic tool, and it's been amazing personally what it's done for my growth and what it's done for the youth as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, I think this is a good spot to just take a break and sit with the the really important work that you guys are, the way that you think about um, the role of farming in the community as well as just the business that it has to be. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Lunch Agenda. I am your host, Julie Kurtz, and we are talking today with two millennial farmers, Davon Goodwin of North Carolina and Jake Errett of Minnesota. Um, so I want to step now into this series is called Eating the Green New Deal, and um, the Green New Deal uh, really captures some of the, the social elements of not just there's this element of... of um, facing the climate crisis and agriculture being a part of that, but there's also these real strong social components, kind of the things you've ta- been talking about of of pushing back against consolidation, um, whether that's in farming or other industries, as well as as some of the historic discrimination that has happened for a lot of communities of color um, and different disadvantaged communities that have faced really systemic racism um, throughout our U.S. history, and so. I want to just kind of get a sense of, as millennial farmers, uh, I don't know how much you've been kind of tuned in to this, this Green New Deal. On the first episode of this series, we read a little bit from it. Um, but I'm curious, in your communities, has, is the Green New Deal something that has resonated? Um, has there been reaction to it? Has there been pushback? Has there been excitement around it? Um, yeah, what are people thinking about it? Uh, Devon, let's let's start with you this time. Yeah, so I think it's something that, um, I think it's important, and I think it will, I think it can change the way we look at, you know, agriculture and our environment as we move forward. And I think it is something that definitely needs to, needs to happen and go forth. I think, I think there's so much pressure out there when it comes to agriculture, and I think just a, a way we can look at it differently through a different lens. I think the Green New Deal could be something that, you know, we kind of rally around and, and kind of move this ball forward. Yeah. And do you think in North Carolina that there has been, I mean, the Green New Deal doesn't actually say much about agriculture. It's like 150 words. And, and, and there's more, especially as we get into things talking about um, 
the the social aspects and the social justice aspects but do you think that that has it's been resonant with communities especially the agricultural communities in North Carolina or has it has it spoken to them I don't think so I mean it's I mean when you look at the lens of agriculture I mean it's so it's so historical I mean there's so many lenses and it's it's such a deep um you know field and so I don't think that I don't think North Carolinians are looking at it through that lens. Um, obviously, we are a, a pretty strong agricultural state, mm-hmm. um, but I think when you start looking at you know who has access, I don't think that the whole conversation has been resonated with a lot of different communities within North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Jake, how about how about in Minnesota? Well, I just don't feel like I'm that knowledgeable about the topic, unfortunately. And so I would need more to, I guess, understand the question. Are we talking about, like, pollution from... Yeah, so, I mean, the... So some of the things that Green New Deal just talks about is a couple of the principles they talk about working collaboratively with farmers and ranchers in the U.S. to remove pollution. This is kind of what you're talking about. Remove pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture as much as possible um, and, and is feasible technologically by supporting family farmers, investing in sustainable agriculture, soil health, building a more sustainable food system, um, and then just kind of providing all people with clean water, clean air, healthy food, that kind of thing. So they're pretty big picture sorts of things. Um, but, but I think one of the questions is, you know, there's been hype about the Green New Deal more in certain areas of the country than other. And so I think part of it is, is it, is it really resonating with, with farmers in Southwest, Southwest Minnesota? Well, I don't want to speak for all of the farmers, Fair but enough. it's intriguing enough that my mom and I just had this conversation or a very similar conversation. And so we were talking about, you know, solar. And so one of the things that you see around our area is like solar farms, like wind mm-hmm. farms in mm-hmm. particular. And we see now like solar panels being used out instead of, you know, growing corn or soybeans or alfalfa or something, you're going to see, you know, these farms kind of populating. And for me, in my opinion, I don't like solar farms. I don't like wind farms. And the reason why is I don't like, it's not that I don't like the idea. I just think that we could do a lot better. And I look at cities that have, you know, like 100,000 people or 3 million people, and we have all of these houses or buildings. And I'm just, I was, I'm convinced, and I believe that if we really wanted to do something, then we should have, you know, houses with solar panels on them. Because then we could still use the agricultural ground for alfalfa, corn, soybeans. And instead, we're Mm. using it for kind of one thing, and Mm. that's, you know, these solar farms and wind farms. And I just don't see the longevity in that. And the other thing, too, is that I remember I worked on a discussion post, um, and I was doing for Excelsior College. And one of the things that we actually talked about was um, road systems that use solar panels that could heat and cool. So one of the things that in Minnesota last year, we spent $139 million on snow removal. And so I look at this, you know, these roads that we could use that would use electricity. And it's like, why can't we do that? And that's where I think we should be at. It's like we should be getting rid of like pavement and these roads can be replaced you know, in sections, so you're not taking up a whole thing. Now, of course, the dollar amount is significant, but for the longevity to use a renewable source, to use the amount of miles that we have for our roads, to me, that's where we should be striving for. And also, you know, biodiesel. 
you know, more emphasis on that because I would be a supporter of that. And I am a supporter of that. It's just hard to see, you know, there are some companies out there that are trying to make biodiesel, but it's just not taking off in the aspect where I think it should be. You know, we want to rely on fossil fuels. And, um, and so I think, you know, we could get there. It's just trying to get there. You know, I guess maybe in the political aspect of it, trying to get a push for it. Yeah. So one of the interesting things from the first conversation that I had in this series was talking about um, some of the technologies that aren't quite there yet. Um, the, the the Green New Deal and a lot of our, you know, kind of aspirations for solving the climate crisis in the future have, uh, they're expectant of what technology can do. And whether that's the road service or even, even biodiesel that right now is, the the returns aren't that great. I mean, it, you know, we obviously want to move away from fossil fuels, but even thinking about um, right now, the technology doesn't, we're not gaining that much compared to something, you know, like renewables, though, I think is really great sort of you're pointing out, like, can we use that land agriculturally as well? And, and one of the things that our first guest mentioned was that farmers have this opportunity, um, because there are we already have the, the technology, we have the solutions to, to farm in a different way that um, reduces carbon emissions and also sequesters carbon into the ground. And so I'm curious, you know, as two farmers, especially young farmers that are, are really thinking about a long career in farming, how do you think about, um, Jake, you mentioned like the role that farmers play in, in feeding Americans and feeding the world. Is there going to be a role where Farmers need to be the ones that 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 save the world through their ability to to sequester carbon into the soil and reduce pollution and things like that. Is is the role of farmers changing for you know the next fifty years of your career? I think that I think the answer to that is to be a simplistic answer. Yes, that is, and I think we can see that with one of the things that John Deere was trying to do, not that I'm promoting John Deere, I'm just using them as an example, but they did produce a prototype that was an electric tractor, Mm -hmm. sort of like all battery powered. Um, They didn't put it into production, but it was a few years ago they actually made the prototype. And so I think that that is a huge stride. And they're showing, hey, we want to do, use an alternative fuel. We want to use an alternative energy. And so I think that... It'll change, and I just don't know. It's hard to say the direction yeah. as far as fuel goes and what we use. But yeah, I do think that it is, you know, something that we think about. And when a big organization or a big company is even creating a prototype that's all battery powered, I think that's a huge step in towards reducing, you know, using fossil fuels, emissions, CO two, and you know, we're trying to reduce that with even you know like the death fluid that we use and trying to reduce you know with pollution control that we can use on the diesel engines to kind of reduce that and so i think we're striving towards that and that's what we see in you know as the agricultural community and you know looking at diesel engines and i think that you know we're making those but those strides are very low when we look at years and we want things yeah. right now yeah. and you know that i think that's the problem with two is the society is that we want things immediately and so it takes time we well, want to do it properly and so 
And I want to just sort of one of the things that in terms of the way that we manage our soils, that's what this um, Ferd Hefner, our first guest, was pointing out, that actually we have the technology. We may not have some of the, the you know, the technologies for different industries, but we do have the technology to sequester carbon in the soil and change our management of practices. So, um, Devon, I want to give you a chance to, to, to speak to this as well before we, we wrap up. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first job of a farmer is to be a steward of the land that you're farming on. And so I think, you know, North Carolina, we're the second largest solar state in the country. And so we do see a lot of rapid increase of solar panels on our land. Um, and I, I think it's a it's a trade-off. You know, we do graze sheep under our solar panels there in North Carolina, mm-hmm. which is a, a good benefit. Um, but I think it's going to be a trade-off. You know, I really do. And I think the technology is there. Um, and I think, you know, obviously practicing no-till and, and things of that nature, I think it's going to be, you know, something that we look forward to do more in the future. But I think farmers will be at the forefront of this movement because obviously we're working the land. And I think a lot of farmers obviously – um, are great with stewardship of the land. I think we can always improve and do better. And I think looking forward, I think farmers will be at the forefront of the conversation when it comes to not just stewardship, but, you know, um, kind of how we look at how we use our, our land. Yeah. All right. So to close out our time, I'm excited to ask each of you for an action item. So this is that, this lunch agenda tradition, it's something, one thing, can be anything that listeners can do in their own lives to change our food system for the better. So from your perspective, what's one thing that our listeners could do? Devon, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I would say if it was one thing, I would say um, obviously uh, buy local and support your local you know, farming economy. Mm-hmm. You get to know your farmers and get to know their story and, and kind of where they come from and why they do what they do. Great. Jake, how about you? I would say, I would second that, buying local. Okay. You know, buying, going, like, farmer's markets that are hosted around in our area, you know, buying directly from the farmers to get to know, I, that would be my thing as well. I think Davon hit it right on point. Fantastic. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you so much for um, being guests on the show, for, for sharing from your perspective. I think it's really excited. We, we ha- we've had some an older generation of farmers on at the beginning of the show, and then I think to really have a, the millennial farmer perspective of um, as we look forward to what farming in, in, in the U.S. will be in the future. So thank you both so much for sharing your perspectives. Uh, I want to make sure that our listeners know how to follow you. Devon, you are on Facebook at OTL Farms. I think that does that stand for Off the Land? Yep, it does. But OTL Farms and then also on Instagram at o.t.l farms. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay, fantastic. Um and Jake, we're we're just people just have to imagine you, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. Sorry, I'm right. just uh, I'm I'm not on the all right. media. I I might post a, a a good picture of you on on the tractor in the snow there in Minnesota. So I think you said it's 14 degrees there today. So you know, yeah. Go sure. have a cup of tea. <laughs> um, well, thank you, everyone. I'm your host Julie Kurtz. You can follow me at Soil Soul Food on Twitter, 
And then coming up next, next we're going to take a deeper look at land access and how um, racial justice in the United States and Department of Agriculture would need to play a role in a Green New Deal for our food system. But thank you, Jake and Devon. It's been a real pleasure talking with you and tune in. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Lunch Agenda. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>